The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and 1077 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's been another week of shutdown and being in your home alone. <laughs> being in your home alone. <laughs> being in your home alone. That's I don't think right. You've been, you're not alone. No, not really. I'm down at the Bay House looking out over the uh, Indian Creek now. Uh-huh. So it's been a nice uh, been a nice time down here. Very pleasant. You know, there have been rumors that as people stay home and work remotely, uh-huh. that their personal hygiene has been going down the toilet. Oh. <laughs> down the toilet. They, nice. they have they well have done. been managing. They've been looking at sales. It turns <laughs> out that sales of alcohol and soap are up, uh-huh. but the sales for shampoo and deodorant have d- just dropped through the bottom bottom they're not selling that much so they're thinking that it's becoming a stinky workplace as people go remote longer and longer (laughs) uh yeah Mm -hmm. now we're also going to talk about the woman who in 1964 discovered the corona viruses she ran an electron microscope and she did not get much uh much credit for it this week we are featuring the man who invented bluetooth communication Jacobus Cornelius Hartson, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a, he's a, an interesting guy. It's an interesting story of how this whole Bluetooth came along. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got a letter from Arnie in Colorado Springs. He's a longtime listener. Hi, Dr. Shirts. Let's talk about 5G for a moment. How many devices will work or not work with 5G. Uh, what about the current iPhone, iPad, router, laptop, Xfinity TV? Will the new iPhone SE support 5G? And is 5G going to be even viable for most people? Is, when's it going to be rolled out in the cities? Thanks for such an informative and interesting show, Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, Arnie, 5G, of course, is the successor to 4G, fourth generation, or LTE. Now, it should be about 15 to 50% faster than 4G. Now, 5G just though isn't about speed only. You will be able to watch a 4K Netflix uh, with your cell phone. It's also about capacity. You'll be able to get a stronger signal in crowded areas, which is really important. Like if you want to make a phone call in a crowded sports stadium or at a music festival. Now, 5G uses more spectrum than the fourth generation. That's why there's more bandwidth. Now, you can expect... 5G to be rolling out extensively over the next couple of years. They're all advertising it now, but it is really expensive to roll out that technology, and it's going to be rolling out, you know, in waves over the next couple of years. 
Now, right now, not many, not very, very many handsets support 5G. You got a couple of two or three handsets from Samsung. You've got an LG handset, and you got a OnePlus handset. Now, the next generation Androids uh, will all support 5G. The next generation Apple devices should support it. None of the current iPhone technology supports 5G. Now, the new iPhone SE, which is just a repackaging of current iPhone tech, it's, it basically it's an iPhone 11 stuck in an iPhone 8 case. <laughs> that, that will not support 5G. But Apple is rumored uh, to have the iPhone 12 to support 5G. So I'd say your next, uh, you know, you should probably at this point wait to get a uh, wait to get a 5G phone. I tell you, the first 5G phones that were released, they ran hot because they were trying to connect with all of these frequency bands. It's like you mean temperature they're, they're, wise? Temperature wise, yeah, they were they were running because uh, they, they're basically connecting to to three or four different bands mm -hmm. uh, to try to. Uh, get that throughput, and they were running extremely hot. Now, they've made the chips better, so each successive release is getting better and better. So that's basically why Apple decided not to support 5G with their current technology. Uh, they didn't think it was ready to go. How about, so but when, I, is the, when is the Apple 12 supposed to come out? It's going to come out within the next few months, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, a, it's rumored that it will support 5G. because Does Apple does get one? No, I've got Apple 11. I know you, you know, do. I, I, I decided uh, I could have waited for the 12, but I decided, to tell you the truth, 5G is just not that imp important to me. I, I don't actually watch movies on my iPhone. Mm -hmm. By the time I get a new iPhone, 5G technology will be mature, and I think we'll have very good support for it. It was a good email, Lauren. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. He's another he's another physicist, uh, longtime listener. Dear Doc and Jim, and the true star of the show, Mr. Big Voice. Uh -oh. Now, Doc, yeah, he, he likes Mr. Big Voice. Uh huh. Uh, Are I don't, you sure? Uh, I'm not really Mr. sure. Mr. Big Voice has walked into the studio. He, I think he has something to say. If you if you allow him a, a sidebar here. Okay. Bob, yeah. Bob, are you mocking me? Remember, I know where you live. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I said some sarcasm in Bob's the yeah. way Bob's typing. Yeah. Well, I think I, I think Bob actually likes Mr. Big Voice. Oh, uh, it, he has to have even, some fans, right? Even though Mr. Big Voice mocks Canada too often, he does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, what Bob wrote today. today he wrote to me about an article that was published in 2012 about computers that are powered by swarms of crabs. <laughs> now, he said it's a bit offbeat, but it's kind of interesting. Yeah. This is Bob from Maryland. Well, I went back and read this, and it turned out <clears throat> that they noticed that when there would be a swarm of crabs, they sort of communicate to their next neighbor, and then collectively the swarm behaves like it's making a computerized decision. And they could actually have openings that would that would go from one uh, room to the next and the crabs would coordinate who would go through which opening <laughs> and they would act like either an and gate or an or gate for a computer and so they they actually, they actually modeled this thing and then this uh, this researcher took a swarm of 40 crabs put them in that configuration and sure enough they model an and gate or an or gate or an or gate 
But I tell you, that would be a pretty inefficient computer <laughs> if every if yeah. every transistor location was basically if every uh, was was had to be operated uh, by, by with by, by forty crabs. It's yeah, a good thing that we don't have crab powered cell phones too. I know, They'd but but big. that does. Yeah, that would be it. Boy, it'd be hard to be mm -hmm. hard to carry that around. Yeah. So this, what this does, this actually shows that a lot of organisms communicate with one another, and you get complex behavior out of very simple communication patterns. And so they've noticed this in animals. They've they've noticed say when fish are swimming, they'll they'll get in a very sophisticated um, uh, configuration that makes a lot of little fish look like a big fish. And they do that just by communicating with each other locally, and then collectively, they have this really complicated, you know, algorithm that they're following. That kind of behavior is seen across the animal world everywhere, and it sort of relates to what we'll be talking about with Stephen Wolfram today on cellular automata. Okay, we got you know, an email. I want, yes, you might. If you had a crab-powered cell phone, you might not want to put it in your pocket. No, that'd be that a bad is, idea. That would be an extremely bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, we got an email from Peter in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an old printer that does not support Wi-Fi. I'd like to share the printer over the wireless network. Is there a way to convert my printer to Wi-Fi? Enjoy the podcast, Peter in Fairfax. Well, um, Peter, I tell you, I love Wi-Fi printers because you can print stuff from your cell phone. You can print it from your computer. You don't have to run that USB cable to your uh, to your um, to your computer, and uh, and all of a sudden a single device supports multiple computers. Well, you can do this by using a wireless print server. So you can buy that device, and it plugs into the uh, in, into the uh, input connection of your printer. And then what you do is you just wire the, the wireless print server. You plug it into the back of your printer, and then you connect the print server to the network by, you know, you log into it, you give it the Wi-Fi address. And once it's on your Wi-Fi network, your printer is acting like a Wi-Fi printer. It just, it's almost immediately done. And then you can, uh, you can print from your cell phone or from your computer. It's an easy fix. Uh, in your, there are many, many uh, uh, print servers uh, USB print servers on Amazon, they, ver they vary from $40. I saw one for $90. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they're, all, they're, they're, they're all over the place. Now, I would suggest that make certain that the print server supports AirPrint. If it supports AirPrint, you can print from your iPhone directly. And that, that is, I use that feature a lot. I've got a printer at home. It's a newer printer. It's got Wi-Fi built in, but it supports AirPrint. Yeah. And I get, I can just print directly from my iPhone anytime I want. Makes Life easy. You know, I was just looking at this because I don't have a printer at home because generally I don't need one. But now in the coronavirus era, uh, it would be nice to have a printer. I just found a Canon on the website uh, for 45 bucks. I mean, you can get a wireless printer pretty cheap. I guess I guess that's an OK brand. Yeah. I mean, what they sell you the printer for 45 bucks and then they sell you the ink cartridges for 35 bucks <laughs> and, 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 and you have to put a new, a new ink cartridge in every uh, 30 days. So uh, what happens, what they've done is they have made the cost of the printers ultra cheap mm -hmm. and they make it so you cannot refill the ink cartridges and you have to get genuine ink cartridges. They test some sort of digital signature Perfect. and then they make, make it up on print cartridges. So 
if you're going to do just a little bit of printing, it doesn't matter. Just get a cheap printer and See, just an expensive. Do. I don't need yeah, it just, for much. Yeah, then if you if you're not going to have a big volume, then you that's okay. I've got a Canon printer at home that I love. It was probably not that expensive, but I'm telling you, about every six weeks, it says I'm running low on ink, and you know, so uh -huh. it goes through it goes through ink pretty fast. So you you want to look at the cost per page, and so they'll give you an estimate on how many pages you can get in each print cartridge, uh -huh. and then and then you can calculate cost per page. And, that's that's. That's great. I had no idea about that. That's interesting. And so there, and there are dramatic differences in the cost per page. Like you, if you get a uh, say a, a laser, like a like a uh, one that's based on Xerox technology, so-called laser printers, uh, you can uh, those uh, cost per page is much lower, but the cost of the printer is much higher. So it's a trade-off. So it's not a simple decision to make, but. Uh, but you know, it, you've got plenty of time now, sitting at home, Jim, to uh, you know to to, to, <laughs> yeah, to work sitting on at home <laughs> by myself. Yes, as you would say, by yes, myself. We got, we got an email. We got an email from Stu in Kilmarnock. Dear Tech Talk, we've got a DSL internet connection. It was pretty good when they first installed it, but now it's been terrible for the last year. I need a higher speed because our family does a lot of video streaming. Now, I've been seeing commercials about HughesNet satellite uh, internet, and they say they've got unlimited data with no hard data limits. What exactly do they mean? It's really confusing, Stu and Kilmarnock. Well, Stu, the unlimited data part means just that. As long as you're subscribed to HughesNet data plan, you can use all the data you want every month without worrying about your internet access being cut off if you exceed a predetermined data cap. However... Their FAQ page says if your download speed, that your download speed drops from 25 megabits per second to one to three megabits per second if you reach the data threshold that's defined by your chosen plan. In other words, it just goes, it's slow as molasses once you hit that <laughs> data cap. So uh, if you decide to sign up for HughesNet, you can choose from several plans, range from 50 gigabytes per month to uh, five to from 10 gigabytes per month to 50 gigabytes per month. And then also, if you run out of uh, of your data cap one month, you can buy what they call a data token. And that will give you, you know, for nine dollars, you get a, you get an additional three megabytes to, for the month. But so you need so you just need to figure out, uh, uh, Stu, what your um, how much data your family uses and go with that. I know a lot of people down in this rural Virginia area, they use satellite because it's frequently hard to get uh, wired internet access back to all the houses. We got an email from Alice in Alexandria. Dear Doc and Jim, my friend recently forgot their password and was locked out of their Facebook account, and Facebook will not help them gain access. Is there anything I can do to ensure that this will not happen to me? Alice in Alexandria. Well, here's what happened to your friend. They did not have a good backup email account. You know how you, yes. if you have to reset your password, they'll send you an email. Mm -hmm. Or if you're on your mobile phone, they'll send you, uh, send you to your, um, um, to the phone number on the phone. Well, if for some reason you change carriers and you got a different carrier, you got a different email account, and your old email account you know, becomes defunct, so you can't get into it anymore because you don't have it. 
or suppose you change your phone number if you're using everything on mobile, and then you try to reset your account, and they cannot send the reset message either by text message or by email, you're stuck. They will not uh, do anything, and you'll just have to get a new email account. So that's probably what happened to your friend, Alice. Now, the reason that Facebook does this is that that is the oldest trick in the book, calling up uh, Facebook and saying, look, you know, I lost my cell phone. I lost my email account. Can you reset it for me anyway? And there were thousands of Facebook accounts hacked through that um, social engineering. So Facebook made the executive decision that it's better to lock a few people out of their accounts than it is to let thousands of accounts be hacked. So that's why they do it. I, I actually kind of agree with that. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. If you want to make certain that you're not locked out of your account, first of all, make certain that you always have a good backup email registered with, uh, with Facebook so they can email you a reset email. And make certain that if you're, if you're working your mobile phone, make certain that you always maintain that phone number. And if you change it, make certain that it's registered with the Facebook account. Now, Facebook does have one method. If you cannot reset it by either email or text message, they have what they called trusted friends, trusted friends. And, and what a trusted, it's a trusted contact. And you can have from three to five trusted contacts. So suppose that for some reason you lost your, all your email your email account was dead, your phone wasn't, you couldn't get a text message, but you had trusted contacts listed on your account, you can actually call them up and tell them, look, I've, I've lost this email account, I'm trying to reset my password, and, uh, and then Facebook will contact your trusted contacts, maybe a couple of them, and if those trusted contacts it validate the fact that you called them and said, I can't get into my Facebook account. They will reset it. Now, here's the thing. You've got to put in the trusted contacts before you're <laughs> right. locked out of your exactly. account. And also only get trusted contacts because you see these trusted contacts could conspire to steal your account. Mm -hmm. They I mean, they could go and they could set reset password. Can't, can't, uh, can't connect. And they, and then all of a sudden, Facebook calls the trusted contacts. They say, oh, yeah, they want to reset it, and then they reset it. And so um, so if you're going to get a trusted contact, make certain that you can really trust them. Very important. Dear Doc and Jim, we got this email from Lily in Fairfax. How can I hide sensitive notifications from my iPhone lock screen? I don't like it when all these notifications come popping up like text messages and emails and everything else, because I don't want people looking at, looking at what's coming in my phone when Sensitive I'm not there. Sensitive notifications. Mm. Sensitive notifications. Enjoy the show, Lily and Fairfax. Well, your iPhone does give you a lot of control over notifications. So you can designate certain apps as sensitive. So it hides the content while your phone is locked. Only let you see the full preview when you use touch ID or face ID to unlock your iPhone. It works on every single app on your phone. Now, if you want to just do this for all the apps, you can go to settings and the notifications. And then when you, when you bring up the notifications page, you say tap on show previews at the top of the screen. And you can set the option to 
show it when unlocked, uh, and then everything will be hidden. Uh, uh, there will be no notifications if your phone is locked. You could also say never, or you could say always. And so if the notifications are coming up all the time, then it's probably set for always. So I would just set that option for when unlocked, and then bingo, it will it will be that way. Now, if there's one of the applications that you would like to have the notifications come through automatically, then you can simply scroll down to that actual application, open it up, open it up, and then you can click on show previews. And for that one application, you can set it to always, and then those notifications will come right through. Thanks. That was a very good question, Lily. Listen, we love your email. We do. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and now southwest of Washington on 1077 FM HD 2. In Loudoun County, listen to us on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. There you go. There we go. Today we're going to feature Jacobus Cornelius Hartson. He's a Dutch electrical engineer, and he is best known as father of Bluetooth communication. Now, his friends called him Jop, J-A-A-P. Jop Hartson was born February 13, 1963 in The Hague, Netherlands. In 1986, he got a master's in electrical engineering with, with honors from Delft University of Technology. Then he worked briefly uh, for Simmons, Siemens in The Hague and Phillips in Eindhoven. In 1990, he got his Ph.D. in electrical engineering from Delft University of Technology with honors. His thesis was with programmable filters in silicon using surface acoustic wave devices. In 1991, he was hired by Ericsson 
to work in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. And he worked there for a while, for a couple years, actually. And then Erickson transferred him to Sweden in 1993. He was transferred to the Erickson Mobile Terminal Division in Lund, Sweden. Now, when he got to his job there in Sweden, his task was to find solutions for short-range radio connections to enrich the mobile phone functionality. Short-range, that would be three meters to four meters, uh, you know, or those of us that more within the feet, that would be nine feet to uh, uh, 12 feet. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> I just want to, you know, and those of you that don't know the meter to the foot conversion. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I don't have that handy. <laughs> now, cost and power were the driving factors because, you know, you can't have these peripheral devices you know, using a lot of power, the batteries will go dead very quickly. Now, it was going to be used in a frequency band that was shared by everybody else. It's the it's the frequency band that was uh, for unlicensed applications, and it was 2.45 gigahertz. I mean, Wi-Fi works in that band. A lot of medical devices work. There are just a lot of devices working at 2.45 gigahertz in that band. So in order to eliminate the problem of interference with other applications operating the same band, he used frequency hopping where it would be at one frequency. And if that frequency was kind of noisy, it was hop to another one and hop to another one. And by using frequency hopping, it could, it could actually land on frequencies that did not have interference. And it would hop around 79 frequencies within that band, within that 2.45 gigahertz band. It would, op would hop on b between 79 frequencies, and it would hop 1,600 times a second. So it was hopping at a pretty quick rate. Now, Dr. Hartson, or Jop, worked initially alone. He was Because uh, he had been working on this frequency hopping protocol for a while as kind of a side project. So when they asked him to do it, he could just continue work that he'd, that he'd already been that he'd already been working on. He, he, uh, but then once this thing began getting ahead of steam, they they quickly built a team. In 1995, he was joined by Sven Madison uh, as the number the second guy on the team, and then shortly thereafter, he had 30 people on the team because Ericsson wanted to push this product to commercialization and launch as quickly as possible. Now, the name of the initial uh, development phase, it was called the Multi-Communicator Link, MC-Link. Mm -hmm. They called it the MC-Link, the Multi-Communicator Link. But, uh, and by 1997, the team had a workable solution for the MC-Link. And Erickson realized, though, that if they wanted this technology to take off and to be adopted industry-wide, that they would have to form a group, a standards group that could standardize it, that they could share. This is, this is how technology companies co cooperate in order to achieve more by creating standards group. So in 1998, they formed a special interest group. They called them SIGs, S-I-G, a special interest group uh, that dealt with this multi-channel communication. And uh, the initial founding members were Ericsson, of course, a cell phone company, 
Nokia, a cell phone company, Intel, who wanted to put Bluetooth on their laptops and also make chips for cell phones, Toshiba, that also wanted to make chips as well as put Bluetooth in their laptop, and finally, the uh, and as well as Intel was the final member of the team. Intel was selected to be the lead because uh, I think the group felt that they could be viewed as more of a uh, of, of a fair arbiter as they were trying to negotiate standards. Because what happens in these special interest groups when you negotiate, like Ericsson shows up with their standard, that, and they've already built it, and they want the group to accept their standard. But Toshiba might have a slightly different device, and they want to accept theirs. And so you end up having to compromise and pick the standard that is best overall, and that requires usually an arbiter who can deal with it even-handedly. Now, Jim Kardash, who represented Intel, and, and, and of course, Intel was the lead, he said, you know, this multi-communicator link is not really a very good name. We're not going to be able to, you know, explain it very well. And he said, uh, what we're looking at here, we got a communication channel that's going to unify everything together under one standard. We're going to unify the way all these devices talk with each other. So it turned out that he had just been reading a book on the Vikings. And he had just been reading about the king who, um, who, who had actually united Denmark. And his name was Harold Bluetooth. Ah, He was a 10th century Spanish Danish king, and so he said, why don't we name this technology Bluetooth? Because it will unite devices just like Harold Bluetooth united <laughs> Denmark. Right. So they said, okay, not a bad idea. And the symbol for Bluetooth is actually based on his initials. And so the Bluetooth SIG was officially formed. And now the second step you do whenever you're trying to launch a technology is you have to handle the patents. So Ericsson, and actually uh, Jacob Hartson, he had five of the key, five of the foundational patents for Bluetooth. So each of the companies that is a member of the SIG, they donate their patents to the SIG, to the, to the, uh, to the SIG, to the special interest group. So anybody who's a member of the special interest group, has use of those patents without paying a royalty. And that allows for cooperation and it allows for the launch of a new technology. And they, they handle that quite well. So this is, uh, and so the Bluetooth SIG, they actually define the standard. They license the manufacture of products that meet the standard. So if, if you buy a product and it's got a Bluetooth symbol on it, it means that the Bluetooth SIG has evaluated the product and they've approved it as being in conformance to the actual standard. And then after the devices are made, they test the devices for compliance to the standard. Now, now Hartson, he of course had the five foundational patents for the, for this, for the Bluetooth SIG, but Dr. Hartson has over 200 patents overall. And uh, it and so in 1999, 
this was the year, one year after the special interest group was formed, Bluetooth 1.0 was released. In 2000, the first mobile phones with Bluetooth appeared, as did the first PC cards and the first prototype Bluetooth mice, Bluetooth keyboards, and USB Bluetooth dongles. In 2001, the first Bluetooth printer was released. The first Bluetooth laptop was released. The first Bluetooth car kits were introduced. So you can see this was penetrating the marketplace because they had standardized it properly. In 2011, the SIG, the Special Interest Group, had 15,000 member firms and Bluetooth 4.0 was released. Now, by the way, we are now up to Bluetooth 5.0, and most of the old devices that we have out there are Bluetooth 4.2. The big breakthrough with Bluetooth 5.0 is that it allows you to have two simultaneous audio streams. So you could hook two Bluetooth headsets to the same Bluetooth transmitter, and both headsets could receive audio. Before Bluetooth 5, you could only have one audio stream per uh, Bluetooth radio. And also the Bluetooth 5.0 is much faster and has a much longer range. In 2010, uh, Jacobus became the chief technology officer for Tonalite. That's a company that creates, well, as you'd expect, wireless products. Of course. In 2012, Tonalite was purchased by Plantronics. And uh, and then Plantronics made him, made uh, made Jop a senior expert in wireless systems. In 2015, he was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame, and he's still he's still working for Plantronics. They're working on wireless devices. So there you go. Everything you want to know about Jacobus Cornelius Hartson, the father of Bluetooth communication. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and now southwest of Washington on 1077 FM HD2. In Loudoun County, listen to us on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. 
Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because you can virtually sit down now. Yes. They're actually sitting down. I'm watching it. Okay. Very good. <laughs> so earlier in yes. the show, of course, uh, you know, we had a great, a great session. And you might have thought it was a radio show. But might've. actually, it's a classroom of the airwaves. Oh, right. And that means that we have to test whether the class has been learning in the classroom. And we do that with the pop quiz. You get the right answer to the pop quiz, you get A-plus for today's show, plus you'll win tickets to fine dining to one of our dining rooms uh, as soon as they open up after the pandemic. The uh, Early in the show, I talked about Jacobus Cornelius Hartson. He, of course, is best known as father of Bluetooth communication. Where did the name Bluetooth come from? There you go. If you know the answer to today's question, get on the phone and get in line to play the pop quiz. Dial us now. If you're calling from Western Rocky, it's 877-936-9333. If you're standing next to a mountain-high pile of oyster shells in Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If your teeth are turning blue in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized on the half hour. 877-9-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. There you go. What? Okay, thank you. For, I thought I'd talk about a, a technology that I've got down here at the Bay House. Okay. I just got a green light to put in the water beside the dock. It's an arc light. lamp. That's down on the bottom, a 250-watt arc lamp, and I put it about uh, 15 feet off the dock, and it turns on at night, and then it attracts minnows that circle around. And then pretty soon, big fish come in to eat those minnows. Pretty soon, bigger fish come in to eat those minnows, (laughs) until finally, I've got a whole seafood buffet right out there beside my dock. Or a shark. I haven't seen sharks yet, but here's the amazing thing. This morning, I, you know, my 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 um, green light was on. I finished preparing Tech Talk at 5 a.m. It was still dark. The green light was still on. I went out to my dock. I caught five fish in 30 minutes. I mean, and they're all and they're all about two pounds. I mean, two pounds or larger. So you caught them? Yeah, with a fishing rod. Yeah. Wow. I just fish with minnow. I, I just actually, it's artificial bait. It looks like a minnow. Yeah. So what I'm I'm getting here, striped bass, which some people call rockfish. Yeah. I'm I'm getting here uh, puppy drum, which are small red drum fish, and I'm also and I've also got a spotted uh, a speckled trout. That's what I'm picking, and they're and I'm they're all about two 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 and a half pound fish. Are they? Uh, is this dinner? 
yeah, this will be dinner. I You're mean, have what, the, uh... you know, I just I just have to get Marianne to clean them, and then and then and then we're going to be good to go. Oh, so it turns it turns yeah. out it's easier to catch the fish than it is to clean them. So yeah, so <laughs> Marianne gets to clean them. How nice! We have uh, the Gordons of Gloucester fishermen on the line here, and uh, so we'll have fish sticks down at the the Bay House tonight. How nice! That's right. So this this tech it's really interesting. You can also get green LEDs. But the green LEDs are not hot. So if you leave them in the water, barnacles completely coat the LED light. So you have to take it out all the time. But with this arc lamp, because it gets so hot, it burns the barnacles off. So barnacles don't stick to the arc lamp. And so I can, the, just leave, I can just leave it in the water and it burns every night. Why yeah. does the green light attract fish? Uh, I don't know. But it does. They, they just love it. They just circle around it. Now, I would have thought you would have had this hooked us up to some sort of solar detection thing that would turn it off when the when the daylight comes out. It does. It auto. It oh, turns it does on automatically. Yeah, it's it's on it's on a solar cell and it turns on and off automatically. Ah, gotcha. So, but it is amazing. As soon as you know, I go out there and it turns on in the evening. You'll see the minnows come first, and within a half an hour, you just see the big fish circling, and there and and a lot of the, there's some really big fish down a little bit deeper. And, and and you can see their shadow as they go over the the lamp. You you sort of see the shadow projected mm -hmm. on this thing. So that's my latest fish technology. That's that's really interesting. <laughs> Let's You're talk welcome. about the woman who discovered the coronaviruses back in 1964. Now her name was June Almeida. Now she was an electron microscope operator for the Ontario, Ontario Cancer Institute. She was actually born in Scotland, and she migrated to, to Canada. And she developed new techniques for using the electron micro microscope. This was just about the time it was being used for biological research. I uh, see an electron microscope, when you want to look at something very, very small, smaller than the wavelength of light, you can't use light because its wavelength is too long. So you have to go to something else. So they blast electrons at the specimen, and electrons, if you treat them as a wave, have a very short wavelength. And so you can get a very high resolution image, you know, of, of, of an individual atom or an individual molecule. But the problem is you got to know how to interpret the image. And it, there was quite a bit of work on how to do this thing. And she, she developed some very interesting techniques for looking at viruses because you, you can't have the electron beam to, you know, d destroy the virus. So you have to, you have to, you have to find a way to get the electrons to scatter off the virus. So she solved the problem that she could take antibodies taken from a previously infected person. So if she's looking at virus A, she would find somebody who had been infected by virus A, and they would, she would extract antibodies from that person. And then she would put those antibodies together with the virus. And it turns out that the antibodies, they're like little antigen pieces that connect all over to the virus and they coat the outside of the virus. And so when she would have these antibodies coating the virus, she was able to actually see the virus. So she developed this, uh, this technique and this allowed her to diagnose various viral infections. Now she became quite famous with this technique and she was, uh, lured back to, uh, back to England. Uh, she went back to London and she was working at St. Thomas Hospital Medical School. And there was a, a doctor there, Dr. David Terrell. He sent her a flu-like virus. 
back in 1964, it was it was labeled B814. It went from a, it was from a sixth school boy in Surrey. They suspected that the B814 might be a new type of virus. Now she did take that specimen, and she was able to image it. And uh, what it looked like was it looked like a round ball with all these spikes coming out of it. And she's and she said, I remember seeing two other viruses that had that same look. And one of, one of the viruses was uh, from a bronchitis infection in chicken. And the second one was a hepatitis liver inf inflammation in mice. And they both had that same look. And so they said, I, she did agree. I think we have come across a new class of viruses that have a particular look. Now, Almeida and Terrell, the guy that brought the sample, and Almeida's supervisor gathered together to wondering what they should name this new group of viruses. And when, and when they looked at that ball with all these spikes on the outside, all those spikes sort of looked like a halo in the picture. They said, so it's like the corona of the sun sort of surrounding it. And so they decided to call these coronaviruses because they reminded them of the sun's huh. corona. Now, of course, corona is just the Latin word for crown. So that's, so that's where it came from. And the thing is, she was given no credit for this discovery until very recently. Other people took credit for it all because the thing is, women in science tend to be overlooked back in the day. Mm -hmm. And so, but recently now, she's been, uh, you know, recognized for her work on coronaviruses. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and now southwest of Washington on 107.7 FM HD2. In Loudoun County, listen to us on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Boy. You've had two yeah. weeks. You've had two weeks to fix the door. 
two weeks to fix the door. And it's and still a mess. I haven't done it. I haven't done it anything to that door. I know. Maybe you should hang a green light on it. I just hope the door fish. doesn't permanently lock me in the bunker. Uh, That's my hope. I hope not either, because we need fish. By the way, if you have any leftovers, freeze them for me, would you mind? Okay, I'll I'll work on that. And I'm working on this green light thing. I want to know why green lights bring fish around. Okay, you you can check on okay. that. So the, so the last two weeks uh, I've been off because we had graduation ceremonies at Stratford University. We had the one in two weeks ago. We had uh, one in Virginia, and then a week ago we had one in uh, in uh, Maryland, in Baltimore. And I always get nostalgic during graduations. I give commencement addresses at these events, and uh, you know I see the kids, young adults. They're not kids, young adults. Uh, and they have uh, graduated and achieved so much that it just warms my heart. But I was in Baltimore this last preparing for the talk uh, last uh, week, actually. And I, and I actually threw out the talk that I originally prepared because I started thinking about a meeting that I'd had with Elijah Cummings. Elijah was very uh, uh, was from Baltimore, and uh, he was a real firebrand. Yeah. And you'd see him on TV just as a firebrand. But he was completely different in person. So I went in to, to meet Elijah about two years ago. And uh, they had originally scheduled five minutes for the meeting. And, uh, you know, you're sort of your typical photo op kind of thing. And um, uh, we started talking about education. And it was the most fascinating conversation because Elijah Cummings believed that the real hope for Baltimore was in the youth and was with education. And he thought we had to focus on education. And I know Elijah would not be happy with these riots now because he he was in he actually followed in the footsteps of Martin Luther King on the, uh, you know, the you know, the nonviolent protests. And of course, Martin Luther King followed in the, in the footsteps of Mahatma Gandhi in, from India, in nonviolent protests. And uh, Elijah died last year, October 17th, 2019, at age 68, far too young. Had, had he not died last year, he'd have been the commencement speaker at our graduation in Baltimore. Mm. So that's why I was thinking about him. So Elijah Cummings was born January 18, 1951, in Baltimore. His parent, his dad was a sharecropper. And his dad had lived in the Deep South. And before he, they started having children, he decided he was going to move to Baltimore because he wanted good educational opportunities for his children in Baltimore. So he moved to Baltimore, left the Deep South for education. Elijah was the third of seven children. Uh, born to his parents there in Baltimore. And his dad instilled in Elijah the importance of getting a good education. Now, Elijah was a firebrand even at age 11. At age 11, he went to a, a, a swimming pool in southern Baltimore City, and he actually protested and got that swimming pool integrated. At age 11, he was already doing that. He graduated from Baltimore City High School with honors. He attended Howard University, and ultimately he got a law degree from University of Maryland in 1976. Then he practiced law for 19 years before he went, became a state delegate, and then shortly thereafter he became a, 
a, a representative in the U.S. Congress. Now, he thought, and this is this is, and this meeting, which started out five minutes and went to two hours long, mm. because we started talking. Okay, what what do the youth really need? What 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 does education have to give them? And so we we sort of were talking about it, and he thought the first and foremost they had to have a growth mindset where they believe in themselves. They would um, believe that they could do something. They wouldn't fear failure. And you can only do that by by letting them accomplish things. And he thought and he thought education needs to do that. He, he felt communication skills are the key: writing, speaking, critical thinking skills. And we talked a bit about leadership and uh, how you teach leadership to uh, to uh, to students. And and I just you know I'd been influenced by our campus in New Delhi, India. And in India, mindfulness and meditation are really uh, at the forefront there. And mindfulness is the key to leadership. Uh, somebody who's mindful, who can feel their own emotions, can feel what others need, and they can become a mindful leader. So we talked about mindful mindful leadership. And the last thing we talked about, which has also influenced my influence from our campus in New Delhi, was happiness. We thought, we thought that, that education should teach people, students, how to be happy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really peculiar. We, we don't talk about that. You know, you just, and so we, uh, and so it turns out that many times people have the wrong goals. I mean, if your goal is to be rich and have a lot of money, You'll actually never be happy because some happy because somebody's going to have more money than you, or if your goal is to have a big house, somebody will always have a bigger house and you you won't be happy, and that the only way to have true happiness is to give to others, and that the school should should sort of communicate that to the students. So, we were sitting there talking about a roadmap for creating a, an educational program in Baltimore that could really create the kind of leaders that Baltimore needs for the future. I um, uh, just became very nostalgic because I wish Elijah Cummings uh, would have hung around a little longer because I think we could have made a real difference there working together in Baltimore. And, you know, we, we had another conversation. I mean, Elijah and I are on different sides of the aisle, but when it came to the youth of Baltimore, there was no light between us. And so I said, why... Why can't you guys in Congress get along like we're getting along? Yeah, it seems like if you if you if you get rid of the politics and focus on the problem, you're going to find common areas. He said. Uh, he said, Rick, you're right. We should do more of this. Yeah. Hey, the research desk desk is checked back. Okay. Green okay. light. What did you find out? Uh, it it turns out that zooplankton respond differently to na different wavelengths and intensities, and they tend tend to swim down to avoid bright light wavelengths less than five thousand angstroms. They swim upward in response to lights with a wavelength of more than five thousand angstroms. Green, red, yellow, orange, and white. Green is the most effective, and that is uh, why uh, this works because the zooplankton come, then the minnows, and so on and so forth before you have the Loch Ness monster. But, you know, it's ah, funny. When I was a kid, good. when my uncle had a boat, there were dock lights. And at night, we would find the fish. We were all hanging around the dock. And that seems to be why. No, That would be it, yeah. Why do they respond to green light? We don't know because zooplankton can't talk. You can get LED uh, lights for your boat that will hook onto the battery. I saw so that, you can, yes. So, so you can throw an LED light off, out, uh, off the side of the boat and do fishing. I'm telling you, it works yeah. really well. Apparently, fishing boats are doing this to attract fish to the boat.
I've had the light working for six days, and in f- six days, I've caught 35 fish. I think you found a new industry. I found a new industry. Shirts, and, shirts, seafood. Yeah, but you know, the problem is cleaning the fish is the issue. Tech Talk Radio. My name is Sherry. I live in Paris, France, and listen to Tech Talk via podcast. So great. We have got an overseas Tech Talk listener. I have a seasonal food science question for you. What makes the bubbles in champagne? How is it that they seem to come out of nowhere? Ah. How is it the bubbles never seem to stop? Why does this work better in a fluted glass rather than any other type of barware? Uh-huh. Obviously, Cherie has been doing she's some been, research. She's been dipping into the booze, I think. <laughs> That's right. Best regards and Happy New Year from your biggest fan across the pond, Sherry. <laughs> but wait, there's more. I know. More? You're not going to read that on the air. Okay. No, no, we can't read that on oh, the sure air. Oh, sure. Okay. Can. By the way, you guys have the sexiest voices of any announcers on Federal News Radio. <laughs> Are you as hot as you sound? May we get an autographed picture? Hey, is Federal News Radio sending out autographed pictures of the Tech Talk only boys? Only taking them, I guess. <laughs> well, Cherie, you know, bubbles in um, in champagne are an interesting question. Yes, they, they are. actually are dissolved carbon dioxide gas, which is coming out of the liquid. Now, it turns out they start out as strings of bubbles that rise in pairs, and they gradually transition to bubbles in groups of three or so, and then they finally settle down to a pattern of regularly spaced individual bubbles. Now, it turns out that these bubbles arise from nucleation points on the glass wall. Ah, See, that's why right? imperfections in the glass wall, that's why the fluted glass tends to be a little bit better because it has more imperfections around those creases. Ah. Now, the nucleation points are small defects in the glass that trap vibrating pockets of carbon dioxide. Dissolved gases in the champagne gradually collect in the vibrating bubbles inside the defect, causing it to grow and soon expel gas from the defect. And so it starts out there, and then you'll see a string of them, and gradually they start coming out And that's why they just keep everywhere. going and going and going. That's right. There's a lot of research on, uh, you know, looking at bubbles coming out of dissolved gases because nitrogen bubbles that grow in blood vessels cause the bends. So mm-hmm. they so they want to study nucleation of the sort of dissolved gases coming out of a liquid. But that was an excellent question, Cherie. And, and I'm telling you, I spent a lot of time watching those bubbles. That's it for this week. Tune in next week for more Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.